0: Hi everyone, this is Carmen. And Christina, And this is Historias Unknown, a podcast where we talk about Latin American history. Sometimes it's horrible and deals with heavy topics like racism, corruption, and genocide. But more than that, it's also about resistance, power, and community. And I'm sorry I sound sick still. Today, we, uh, well I, I'm going to be telling you about Rubén Salazar. This is again part two of our two-parter, the Chicano Moratorium. Okay, so... Ruben Salazar, and I'm sorry, I sometimes say Salazar wrong. (laughs) Well, how is it supposed to be? I sometimes accidentally don't say Salazar. Like, I don't put the emphasis the last A. How was I saying Oh, I was saying it wrong. You were saying saying it right. Oh, okay. Then I just naturally say it right. Cool. (laughs) I I wasn't even trying. (laughs) I think I was (laughs) actually saying just like Salazar salazar instead of salazar yes okay okay i i hear it i hear it when you say it without the accent it sounds like a like a spanish harry potter spell no (laughs) yeah yeah i guess it does yeah i said said it like that a few times last episode (laughs) Mm. my bad oh okay and then i sometimes said it right might happen again do you have the beanie oh yeah this is the beanie that i've got you um sorry carmen and i you're not gonna see it because we're not recording but yeah. um, I got us some beanies from com. They are a Palestinian-owned clothing company who sells stuff about Palestine. And proceeds go to um, feeding children in Gaza. Mm, cool. But I got us a beanie and it has like a little red, the Gaza Strip basically, on mm-hmm. a white beanie. And then the back says Palestine. So you can switch it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I like cool. this better. I like this little. Oh. It looks really good. So yeah, I have yours. Okay. So uh, yes, Ren Salazar was born on March third 1928 in Ciudad Juárez, Mexico. He immigrated with his family the following year, so he was 8 months old when they immigrated from Mexico to the United States in 1929. And there's not a lot on his like early childhood or early life really before mm-hmm. graduating college basically. There's not a lot of information. So he became a naturalized citizen on October 15, 1947. He grew up in Texas, attended public schools, and graduated from El Paso High. Shout out to El Paso High. It's haunted. Ah, uh, yes. The- <laughs> <laughs> Little Spooky Tales shout out. <laughs> yeah, a Spooky Tales shout out. So he graduated from there in 1946. So the following year is when he became naturalized as a citizen in 1947. So then he went to the University of Texas at El Paso. At the time, it had a different name, but I didn't write it down. Oh, okay. And this is where he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism. He started his career at the El Paso Herald Post. And here, he had a lot of firsts. Amazing. I yeah. love it. <laughs> he was the first Latino reporter, the first Latino foreign correspondent, and the first Latino columnist of the city, basically. Wow. His work was Controversial. Oh, I can't controversial. I can't. Yes, thank you. His yeah. work was controversial even back then. He once pretended to be a homeless man so that he could get arrested and then report on the poor treatment of prisoners in El Paso. Wow. Like that's I how mean, committed. Dedication. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's how committed he was to his work. And of course, this caught the attention of like many. So he was able to uh, move to Northern California in 1956, where he began to work for the Santa Rosa Press. Santa Rosa Press, Democrat, is the newspaper. And then he later worked for the San Francisco News. And then in 1959, the L.A. Times was like, hey, come work for us. So he moved to Southern California to work for the L.A. Times. And his work at the L.A. Times is probably his most like popular, well-known work. Mm-hmm. Here, he was a foreign correspondent as well. So he covered the 1964 U.S. invasion of the Dominican Republic which is on our topic list. I will cover it. Oh, I was going to say something I've been learning about that from geopolitical economy podcast also. Oh, have you? Have you? Yeah. I'm just never going to shut up about that podcast. I know. It's so good. We don't learn about any of the U.S. invasions of that time. And you know what else that I learned from the podcast that I was like, I never connected the dots on uh, because I'm not as smart as the people on that podcast <laughs> <laughs> or Ben Norton and his guests. And this is off topic. Also, the episode of for of whatever. Um, but you know how we learn about the Cold War and how the US was like preventing, like you know, communism from spreading. Yeah. But re- really, they were not preventing, and they they were not on the defensive. They were on the offensive and invading and yeah, overthrowing and ruining other countries. Yeah. Yeah. For so-called democracy. But of course we don't learn about that because we you know we can't learn about how horrible. No. And then later you start connecting the dots, like, oh my god, there was the Bay of Pigs. Oh my god, they're connected to all these overthrowing democracies yeah. in Latin America. Yeah. Yeah. All over. Sure. It, it all is connected. Yeah. So yes. He covered the nineteen sixty-four US invasion of the Dominican Republic. And all all this he was also like Able to do with more like detail, more like nuance than the other people covering the situation in the United States because he Mm. spoke Spanish. So Mm -hmm. he was on the ground talking to the Dominicans, whereas others were not. The Vietnam War, he covered extensively and he talked to the Mexican-American soldiers at at the Vietnam War. He covered the Tlatelolco massacre, which Mm -hmm. happened in Mexico and is also on a topic list. I will cover it. But this massacre happened right before the 1980s Olympics that took place in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. For those that don't know. And when he was not working on foreign affairs, he covered topics in L.A. that others were not touched. The inferior quality of education that Mexican-Americans were receiving. Unemployment in the Mexican-American community. Poor and restricted housing conditions in L.A. that affected the Mexican-American community. Mm Mm-hmm. All of that came with covering civil rights movements and protests, like all the walkouts, the school walkouts. Yeah. Movements like that. He didn't shy away from filming the police, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which a lot of people did at the time. He was not new to clashing with LAPD during his reporting. He was already like on their watch list because all of that. Yes. Especially when he began covering the East L.A. walkouts specifically. He was the only one reporting on the Mexican-American community during this time. So he became, like, the voice for everyone, really. Mm-hmm. And after his death, like, a martyr for the Mexican-American yeah. community. Like, he's, he was put on a pedestal. And he, there's even, like, some people that are like, oh, he doesn't even deserve all that. Why not? I mean, he was doing these things. And then someone, like, set out to, like, bust the myth of yeah. Ruben Salazar. And they, like, talked to his family. And apparently he was, like, he didn't speak Spanish at home with them. And they are like, he married a white woman. Oh, he was, like, reporting on these things, but then he went home to a white community. He had a white wife and his kids didn't speak Spanish. Uh, but I'm like, at least he's covering these issues. Like, hey, no one else was doing what he was doing at the time. Yeah. Yeah. It, I don't think it takes away from anything. Same. Same. Yeah, he wasn't afraid to film police brutality as it was happening or the reality of the community. He did eventually leave the L.A. Times to go to Channel 34 News. The predecessor to Univision. Yes, thank you. Yeah. It was a news channel for Spanish speakers and like Carmen already said, the predecessor to Univision. But during that time, he still continued a weekly column in the L.A. Times, but it was more of opinion pieces. Mm. And a lot of people criticized him. They were like, aren't you working with like a bias? And one of his fellow journalists, L.A. Times journalists, interviewed him during this time And I want to read part of this interview, especially because a lot of what he's saying is also relevant like today. So Bob Navarro is the person interviewing him. Bob Navarro tells him, but it seems that to me, you're leaving a position as a reporter who should be, quote, objective and venturing into an area of advocacy. And then Ruben Salazar replies, objectivity is impossible. And I don't think there's a newsman alive who really thinks that objectivity is the name of the game in the news media. And then Bob says, but is advocacy the name of the game? Can you work as a functional day-to-day reporter in the position of advocacy? And he replies, I'm only advocating the Mexican-American community, just like the general media is advocating. Really, our economy, our country, our way of life. So I'm just advocating a community within a community, which, by the way, the general community has totally ignored. And so someone must advocate that because it's easy for the establishment to say, aren't we all the same? Aren't we all Americans? Well, obviously we're not. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in the revolutionary process that we are in now. Speak on it. Speak on it, Ruben. Yeah. And like, yeah, true words have, or like, it's just, it's still relevant. It's like, yes, and yeah. this was the what, 1960 something. <laughs> I don't even yeah. know. Yeah. down The date. His reporting on Chicano issues made him a target for the FBI, of course, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because they're bitches. (laughs) (laughs) The Federal Bureau of Bitches. Oh, my God. Some of those that were close to Ruben Salazar strongly suspect that he was targeted during the Chicano moratorium. Yes, yes, yes. Because a lot of people claim it was an an accident, including the LAPD. But a lot of people think it was on purpose. Also, the LAPD is full of shit. (laughs) Also, they suck. Also, fuck them. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Three months after that interview with Bob Navarro, Ruben Salazar was killed during the Chicano moratorium. But for at least six months before his death, he felt like his life was in danger and that he was going to be killed. During a protest at Roosevelt High, and this is during the East L.A. walkouts, so the high schools in East L.A., Ruben Salazar captured a moment when an LAPD officer dragged the teenage boy like he was just dragging him for no reason. And he recorded this. The LAPD tried to block his reporting on this. They went as far as writing letters to the L.A. Times editor mm-hmm. demanding this to be retracted. And then he was under even more hot water with the LAPD when he began investigating the murder of two Mexican nationalists at the hands of LAPD officers. So this was a case of mistaken identity. The two men were not who the LAPD thought they were. Still, they entered this apartment and killed them. Oh, my God. Story is... What are we... Are we saying story is? As old as time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> something they are doing to this day. Yeah. So they killed these two Mexican men for no reason other than like, oops, sorry, my bad. We thought we were at another apartment, which is like... Mm-hmm. Which, why are you going in for the kill anyway? Like, who exactly. the fuck are you? Who what the fuck <laughs> exactly so ruben salazar aggressively covered that on this hispanish channel channel 34 as he should as anyone should as he should yeah but they didn't yeah exactly again he was the only one talking yeah. about this kind of stuff and he was warned by the lapd which is why he feared for his life of course which is something that no journalist like they're should not be targeted. I think there's like laws against this. I think there's international laws. And also there's a the thing called freedom of the press. Mm-hmm, right. And also when government officials and agents of the state threaten journalists, that's like authoritarian, you know, that's. Yeah, this is not a democracy. And this was in 19, the 1960s, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're still doing this for today. Exactly. So- yeah. He was visited by two undercover LAPD officers in plain clothes at his news channel. They warned him that this kind of reporting could be dangerous in the minds of barrio people, is what they told him. Not the barrio people. <laughs> yeah, because it was going to, it was dangerous for the barrio people. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You can't talk about this because they're going to hate us even more. Like, wait, they already hate well, you. What do how you about mean? you stop doing hateful shit and people won't hate you, you dumb fucks. How about you stop killing people? What if, uh, let's think about, what if you stop killing the people from the barrio and then the people from the barrio won't hate you? Did you think about that? (laughs) Wow. Insightful. Wow. 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 Who who, who thought? Not them. (laughs) Yeah. But their threats didn't stop Ruben Salazar. He continued to report on the unjust treatment of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans by the LAPD and thus continued to be a target for them. Three days before the Chicano moratorium, Ruben Salazar met with three friends and they all noticed that he was extra nervous during that meeting. Mm. He told them he was worried that the police were following him and that they were trying to interfere with his reporting. And then three days later, August 29th, 1970, it is the Chicano moratorium. And of course, Ruben Salazar was on site. This is the kind of stuff he's been covering his entire journalistic career. So he was there. And again, you already said, but this was organized to protest the Vietnam War and all the other things you said. Or Mexican-Americans name like, largely were being killed um, in disproportionate numbers during the Vietnam mm-hmm. War, um, which is why the whole thing, you know, began. And then, like you said, the owners of the Green Mill liquor store called 911. And see, the only thing I could find is that they were complaining of people stealing from them, but I could not find that they were locked in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. And they were just worried about people stealing from them because uh, there was a large group of 50 in the store. That's uh, when the LAPD began firing tear gas. Things got more violent. Ruben Salazar was taking a break at the nearby Silver Dollar Bar when all this was taking place. And a tear gas round was fired by the LAPD through the doorway and it hit him in the head which killed him. Mm-hmm. Mind you, this was not a normal tear gas round that should have been fired inside of a building. It was a small building. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even the type of round that they would fire at people. So this was a 10 inch wall piercing type of canister meant to be used for barricade situations. So if the LAPD was trying to storm in or like destroy yeah. a barricade, this is the kind of canister that would have been used. Not one that you... shoot so yeah. of course, if that hit somebody, that would... Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is not one that they would ever shoot through a door, which is what they did. Which seems, I don't know, like not an accident to me. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The sheriff deputy that fired the shot was never prosecuted. Mm -hmm. the LAPD stated that they were answering a call about two armed men inside of the bar. This was proven to be a lie later on. Of course, of course it was. That call never happened. In fact, the L in LAPD stands for liars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, seriously, it really does. (laughs) And though the LAPD maintains that this was a tragic mistake, when how could they be believed? (laughs) Yeah i mean already lies they were stalking the guy, taking him Mm -hmm. out threatening Mm -hmm. him they found their opportunity when he was at yeah this whole thing it was the perfect chance for them to do this allegedly (laughs) we're not trying Mm -hmm. to get um sued or on their watch list either (laughs) but yeah again why are they firing this that is never fired into a open door that it's not like appropriate for that setting or whatever yeah, and the, the um, LAPD and that sheriff argued that, um, or that cop, whatever argued that they weren't paying attention to what canister they had. Oh, so, oh, so you're a dumb fuck.
1: Yeah, dumb
0: fuck. one. <laughs> of course they are. The P, the the D in LAPD sounds dumb fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, liar and dumb fucks. <laughs> but the uh, it's P H. <laughs> That's how dumb fuck is spelled. Like. <laughs> liars and dumb (laughs) fucks so yeah that cop claims that the canister it was a mistake like he he wasn't paying attention to which one he was supposed to grab because of all the chaos that was happening around him but it's like what you're supposed to be trained in times of chaos what do you mean oh but they're the first ones to be like oh I was so scared (laughs) yes for real that's why they're over here shooting (laughs) everybody and their moms and their children (laughs) and their grandmas Literally everybody and their dogs. (laughs) The poor dog. No one is safe. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're not really. (laughs) No, no, like really, we're not. We're just laughing because it's so morbid. It's sad and funny at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the LAPD maintains this was a tragic mistake, but they did end up settling in the lawsuit brought by the Salazar family three years after. Um, so in 1973, they settled for seven hundred thousand dollars these losses don't mean they're guilty but they do oh yeah and then on top of that they're paid for by the taxpayers yes also that did we talk about the la sorry oh if no one has listened to um man what's it called what is it hold on let me look i still have it on my oh i think it's called the tradition of violence but let me double check I think it is yeah excellent podcast on all of this kind of stuff like it really is it truly infuriating we'll link it on the show notes yeah, a tradition of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she she's on their watch list, too, because of all her reporting on all yeah. of this. Is her name on there? Mm-hmm. She's a journalist. Yeah. Cerise Castle. Yeah, if you look her up, you can also see her um, articles on all of the same. From Knock almost LA. The same, yeah, the same stuff that's in the podcast, basically. She put it into podcast form, but amazing reporting on all this on the LAPD. Yeah, there's a plenty, uh, several Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, and a lot of uh, Ruben Salazar's friends that maintain he was targeted on that day, the day of the Chicano moratorium. Um, he was already being watched by the FBI. Even as far as his early reporting days, like when he was a foreign reporter, he spent some time in Cuba reporting. Oh. And apparently that's when he got on their watch list. That probably put him on the watch list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's one LA Times journalist, Robert Lopez, who continued seeking answers. And 40 years after Ruben Salazar's death, he requested a what's called a FOIA, uh, uh-huh. Freedom of Information Act request. Um, so this is supposed to be like you, you do a Freedom of Information Act request and the files that you're requesting on are given to you. Sometimes you're tracted information, but it's supposed to be free for you to access. Mm-hmm. Not free, but, like, available. And so he did one to try and obtain the FBI file on Ruben Salazar. There was a ton of back and forth that was unnecessary for him. Eventually, I think he said, like, 10 years after he originally requested the file. Like, like three years ago, he got the file. And when did he first request it? I don't remember the exact oh, year, okay. but I think it was, like, early 2000s. And he received it, like, two years, three years ago. And so... They didn't really provide any like new answers for him or anyone. They were just like he was being watched during these time frames. But just like a lot of his reporting was in the file. Mm -hmm. He also requested uh, the LAPD files on him. And he, after a lot of back and forth again, did receive those as well. And he even has a whole amazing article in the LA Times. It's in the show notes as well, but. So, in the LATimes.com, one of the articles that I used is Chase. Okay, so it was 2020 when he received the information. <laughs> that wow. Thought, and so I think it was at least 10 years when he finally got the file. But Chasing Salazar is the name of the piece. I mean, it's all under the LA project or LA Times projects. Chicano Moratorium is like the big project. And then underneath that is his article called Chasing Salazar. Mm. and it's like this long ass thing about how he's just been looking for answers wow but i mean really there was like nothing new oh one thing i did um didn't really mention but he also spent a lot of no i did because he covered the loco local yeah i can't say that yes (laughs) he spent a lot of time in mexico was also like he mastered code switching (laughs) because um Mm. he had to be in these very like white spaces he was often the only mexican man like in a in a newsroom yeah he oh okay and like i mentioned earlier that he someone was like judging him how he wasn't really the, yeah. the advocate that he said he was because he lived in a white area mm-hmm. he lived in orange county oh in a very right-wing area and so he had to act you know like yeah switch um yeah but yeah so robert lopez you know he did that longest report and like in the in the end he doesn't really get you know like new answers there's no new like clues in there about whether he was purposely targeted cuz they're not going to admit that or give him the information that says that <laughs> mhm he did find something that was new to him is that apparently there was a federal grand jury investigation after his death that no one really reported on at the time oh though the grand jury was over very fast and it came to nothing no charges were filed mm-hmm. towards the lapd or anything like that it happened and like that wasn't reported on and there's other reporters that worked at the la times that during this period uh frank del olmo is one of them he told Ro- robert lopez during robert lopez's investigation on this that he believes they were silenced by the la times mm. that the la times wasn't really allowing anyone to fully investigate Ruben's death, even though they had the capacity to, because I believe that they're a big journalistic entity, right? Yeah, but they were told to like not report on it, not write pieces on it. They barely had like a mention of him after he passed, and like his friends that work there were like, they were like, "What the fuck? Yeah, he was so important to this paper. Like, what do you mean? Yeah, but it's like they were trying to get over it as fast as possible. Yeah, is what Frank olmo told um, Robert Lopez. They weren't allowed Mm. to investigate Ruben's death like the paper was just trying to Mm -hmm. swoop it under the rug, forget about it. And in the end, the verdict is mixed. Mm -hmm. There's some that still believe to this day he was purposely targeted while there's others that don't. Yeah. What is clear, though, is that he did die from the same state sanctioned police violence that he was reporting on. Yes in the end whether it was on purpose or not it was still a stink it was still state sanctioned violence exactly and intentional violence at the worst and at the best extreme negligence yeah so he has of course inspired a bunch of latinos latinas to become journalists and in a time when journalists worldwide are being targeted it's important to keep his memory alive because we're seeing like today to this day in Gaza, I think thirty-nine journalists have been targeted by Israel. And um in Mexico, journalists yeah. are also being killed. In Central America, they're being yeah. they're fleeing the country because they're being yeah. targeted. Um so yeah. And like without the freedom of press, what do we have? Like we can't yeah. question the government, we can't write about government corruption. Like where does that leave us, you know? I I found a little bit more information from one of the websites I use for my sources. It's from nomadicborder.com from their Chicano Moratorium 50 years later like they do like a timeline of what um uh-huh. the march where they went and what it was all the stops and everything. And in the part of the article where they talk about the silver dollar bars place in history, mm-hmm. um they um talk about everything you talked about, but they mentioned that Ruben and his cameraman, Guillermo Destrepo, went into the bar specifically because they they felt like they were being followed by the cops. Oh, yeah. Wow. And there's a picture. I don't know if you came across this picture. Multiple eyewitnesses said that um, and the deputy, I don't remember if he said his name or not, Thomas Wilson. He ordered several people into the bar at gunpoint before firing into it. Oh, I did not see that. And there's a picture. And, it, and everything is in, my, in the sources I sent you. It's the from, again, from nomadicborder.com. But there's a picture that Raul Ruiz from La Raza magazine uh, captured of the deputy pointing the gun at people in, at the entrance of the bar just before Ruben Salazar was killed. So they knew he was in there. They knew he was in there, yeah. This, this makes it even seem more like it was on purpose. Yeah. And so then Destrepo, the uh, camera, what are they, videographer? He crawled into the back alley where he ran into a group of sheriff's deputies and they ordered him to leave at gunpoint. And then the KMX management repeatedly called, repeatedly called the sheriff's department for information about Salasad. And they were dismissed. And Rubén Salazar's colleagues found out about his death on the English language TV five hours after his homicide. Oh, my God. I did not see any of that. And then KX management, management um, terrified by Salazar's killing, meaning that they felt like it was intentional. They protected Restrepo. And here they use the last name. I usually use first names because I'm on a first name basis with most people. <laughs> <laughs> but um They protected Estrepo from police harassment and provided him with a lawyer to accompany him to police during police questioning. Oh, I did not see. I'm saving these pictures. Wow. The only picture I had come across was this one. It's just a picture of the bar. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just to show like how small it is Mm -hmm. and that anything fired into that was bound to kill someone. Yeah. And then you mentioned how there was a inquiry that, of course, found no evidence of wrongdoing from the sheriff's department and no charges were filed. But then this article also notes that rather than expressing remorse over the department's role in the violence, the L.A. sheriff, um, Peter Pitches, said that the FBI should further investigate Mexican-American activist groups. And I think that's about it. But just like more info that I found. Wow. Well, I'm I'm glad that you told me about that because that further cements in my brain that sorry i can't talk i'm still sick (laughs) that that further shows me that this was on purpose yeah yeah there's no way um and i also did want to mention that he obviously like i said inspired a lot of a lot of uh, mexican mexican americans sorry about the beeping they keep pressing this button i don't know if you can hear it but that's what the the children keep pressing a button uh yeah, he was the inspiration for a lot of Mexican Mexican Americans and Latinos, Latinas to um, become journalists or even just go to university altogether. Yeah, but also there's a bunch of high schools named after him. There's the park that you mentioned that was mm-hmm. renamed Laguna Park to what? Yeah, <laughs> his Ruben Salazar Park. hmm. And I believe there was a movie, maybe not a movie, a documentary. I think so. Yeah, it's called Rebens assad Man in the Middle. Mm. And it's on Prime Video, apparently. Oh. But, you know, if you don't want to give money to Amazon, then you can probably buy it. I don't know. <laughs> probably somewhere. It has to be somewhere. Um, and yeah, I guess that is the end of this episode. I guess there's do a quick update. Because I did just see that Belize cut diplomatic ties with uh. Israel. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, so I another on... Central American country. Although I assure you that it will probably be the only Central American, <laughs> the only one to do so. Yeah, we're certainly not going to see the same from <laughs> Bukele. I was going <laughs> to say we're not going to see a Salvador do it because he, although he is the son of Palestinian, it's so embarrassing. A Palestinian father. He has very close ties with Israel, and he con- yeah. continuously benefits from a relationship with them because he uses their oppressive software to- Pegasus. Pegasus to further oppress these Southwestern people. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I do not see him cutting any ties. In fact, um, I see him trying to find a way to assist them, even though he can't. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, this is a good place to leave it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you um, are enjoying the podcast and the topics we're covering. Please leave us a five-star rating. Recommend us to any um, history-loving, Latinx-loving, Latinx people, <laughs> anyone. Recommend us to anyone. <laughs> people that need to learn. If you're like, wow, you really need to learn. Whoever needs to learn about this. Then, yeah, send them in an episode. Like, what do you mean? You like, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of, like, something. <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of it. But... But yeah, I mean, you know, share with your friends, whatever. What do you mean, cops, protect you, and then just like send them a bunch <laughs> of our episodes or something? I don't know. Right? Send them send them the episode on the The one on Santos. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> Sad. But yeah, thank you everybody for listening and we hope this is one less historia unknown for you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. I can't talk anymore.